Our message this morning is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19a. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19a. And if you're following along in your bulletins, uh, yeah, I forgot to announce Children's Church. Children's Church. In other words, my boys. Go for it, guys. Uh, yeah. If you're following along in your bulletin, it actually, there's so many, ver- I couldn't get them all on one page and still make them like legible, like to be able to read it without bifocals. So it's actually going to flip. So it's, 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 it starts on the one page, and then to carry on, you just got just to turn the page, and then, and, then we're, and then we're there. All right, so Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19a. And if, you know, it, it wouldn't be hard to make the argument that one of the, if not the most prominent figure in the New Testament, aside from Jesus, is Paul. Paul wrote many of the epistles, the letters to the churches that make up a large part of the New Testament, Romans, Corinthians, Timothy, Ephesians, Galatians. And Paul's mission, his calling, was to the Gentiles, those who were not Jewish. He he traveled the known world planting churches and evangelizing. He's a huge figure in the New Testament. And now if the New Testament is a play, Paul has been waiting in the wings, basically, through the Gospels. But in the book of Acts, he starts to take a more prominent role. But not the role we would expect from a Christian, much less an evangelist. When we first meet Paul, his name is Saul, and he's overseeing the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. See, Paul is a member of the Pharisees. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, as we read this morning, about how he had advanced farther than any of his peers in Judaism. Because of how zealous he was for the traditions of his fathers. And this zealousness caused him to hate the church. He persecuted the church. This is also acknowledged in Galatians 1.23. And we see it here in the book of Acts. In Acts 8.1, which is the verse following the stoning of Stephen, we read, And Saul approved his execution. Saul was out to get the church. They stood against everything he believed, everything that he had been taught. To him, Jesus was a heretic, and it was blasphemy. It was an insult to God to believe in Jesus. So how did Paul end up playing such a major role in the church? How did Paul end up writing so many of the books in the New Testament, planting so many churches, writing so many letters, discipling so many other church planters. Our verses today bring us to a pivotal point in Paul's spiritual journey. How God works through Paul and in Paul, the grace that he pours out on Paul is a wonderful message for us today about how God can use each of us, longs to use each of us in his mission to bring about his kingdom. So, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19a. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jesus. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision. In a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word today. That you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. Pray this in your name. Amen. So getting five boys to bed at night can be a bit of a challenge. And, and since they all stay in one room, it can, you know, it can be even long before they actually go to sleep, right? So, I mean, getting them into bed is one thing. And then you're sitting downstairs and you're hearing them, like, talk and laugh. And there's those, like, bumps. And you're like, eh, is there crying following that? No? Okay. So we're, we're still pretty good. Like, it's still everyone's in one piece. It's all good. It takes them a while to get to sleep. So, so a few years ago, Karen and I opted for a new bedtime strategy. She would get some time to herself because she spent most of the day with the boys while I was at school or out doing my thing. So she would, she would get a bit of time to herself, and I would put the boys in their pajamas and then read them a story. And if I read long enough, certain boys, one in particular, he needed to fall asleep. And if he went to sleep, then like dominoes, you know, they'd all go. We wouldn't have all that, that craziness that went on at night. I needed, I needed them to fall asleep, and then they wouldn't be able to keep everybody else up, which would allow for the other boys to get better sleep, and then the next day wouldn't be as big a deal, right? We were able to kind of bring some, some sanity to the house by doing that. And I mean, I read them a lot of different stories, but some of the favorites were the Chronicles of Narnia. We started that series where that series should be started. Some people tried to, like, mess with it a little bit, and they're like, oh, we need to put the magician's nephew first. Shame on you. First book is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The story of Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund, and their journey through a magical wardrobe 
in the land of Narnia. Talking animals, fawns, magic and mystery. And while three of the four siblings connect with the talking animals and join the rebellion against the white witch, one of them doesn't. One of them ends up joining her team. When I was younger, I detested Edmund. Like, I I couldn't understand how anyone could side with the witch. She's the bad guy. I mean, it seems so obvious. But that's one of the wonderful things about C.S. Lewis's stories, that that as I read it again as an adult, as I read his, his stories again with a more mature perspective, it is so much easier to not only understand Edmund, but to see some of him in myself. Edmund joins the White Witch out of greed and out of a desire to prove his siblings wrong. She gets her claws in him with her magical candy, and and that's all he can think about. It's all he desires. The sin that he's become addicted to overrides his good sense, and he runs to the witch. He betrays his siblings, and he runs to the witch. He betrays his own blood. He sins against his family. He leaves the heroes. We each have a little bit of Edmund in us, don't we? Maybe we have a lot of Edmund. We each have a sinful nature that that pulls at us, that calls us to do what it demands, to fulfill its desires, our desires. And when we give in, we betray our family. We betray our Father in heaven. We each have some Edmund in us. But having Edmund in us does not disqualify us from forgiveness. It does not mean that God does not love us. It does not mean that God can no longer use us in his mission. God has forgiven us. For all of our sins, for all of time, God loves us with an unchanging, endless love that will never wane. It will never go away. And God still longs to use you, to use us in his mission to bring about his kingdom. And the Apostle Paul, man, he's such an excellent example of this. As we read in the beginning of our text this morning, Paul was out to kill all the Christians. Like, that, that's his goal. That's, that's his mission. He goes to the head priest and says, hey, can you give me a piece of paper? It's like 007, like license to kill, baby. I'm going out and I am taking out the Christians. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is how we're going to do this. In his eyes, it was his holy mission to wipe out all of the heresy of the Christian church. How could these people believe that man was God? Man can't be God. They all must die so that this false doctrines, that this heretical belief, that this offense to God himself would be wiped from existence and so that truth can reign. And he did kill. He oversaw murder. He persecuted the church and they feared him. They feared him. And then on the road to Damascus, while on one of his vengeful journeys, Paul is stopped in his tracks by a beam of light, and Jesus himself asks him, Why 
are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Paul asks. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus. What a slap in the face. What a humbling experience. What a shot to the ego. Can you imagine what that would have been like for Paul? To be faced with the reality that he was trying to wipe out, that he was killing the followers of God, the true God? That the man he had been claiming as a heretic was actually the Son of God. That he was who he had claimed to be. Can you imagine the shame? I can. It doesn't take much for you to understand what Paul went through on that road to Damascus because I have lived it myself. So many times I will have just finished committing some sort of sin, giving into anger, lashing out in jealousy, letting my pride speak instead of remaining silent. Taking my frustration, my insecurity out on people that I love and that certainly don't deserve it. And I'm sitting there face to face with my sin. With the shame of my actions, the shame of my failure. And I feel deformed in my sin. Unwanted and unlovable. Do you ever feel like that? That your insecurities and your sin have deformed you. That, that your sin has made you unapproachable, unlovable. That, that because of that darkness, you're useless. Marianne Bird understands how that feels. Marianne was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1928. And she was born with severe cleft palate. I'm not sure if we understand what a what a we we all knew or know what a cleft palate is. I have a picture up here. It's it's not Marianne Bird. It's just a, it's an example of what a cleft palate is. There are much much more uh, graphic and and disturbing instances of that. And and Marianne was one of those. She required approximately 17 surgeries that went well into her teen years to to fix uh, the cleft palate. And in her memoir, The Whisper Test, Marianne relates this story. She says, I grew up knowing I was different and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate and when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others. A little girl, a misshapen, with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. When schoolmates asked, what happened to your lip? I'd I'd tell them I'd fallen and cut on a piece of glass and somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside my family could love me. Convinced that no one outside my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored. Mrs. Leonard, by name, she was short, round, and happy. A sparkling lady. 
Annually, at school, we had a hearing test, and Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in class, and finally it was my turn. And, and I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at the desk would whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? I waited for those words that God must have put into her mouth. Those seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my little girl. As I sit in my shame and my failure, deformed by the sin that has been expressed in my life, the Holy Spirit speaks to me, whispers to me. He brings to mind Bible verses that tell me that God loves me, that he forgives me, that though I have sinned against him, I am not disqualified to be his ambassador, that in spite of my sin, I am still called to be his witness. He still wants to use me in his mission. He still calls me. He whispers to me, I am so glad that you are my child. And he still calls you. He has called each of us. God doesn't just bring us into the family and then we get a permanent spot on the couch so we can chill in the house. Your purpose in the family of God isn't to spill a, fill a spot on the pew. God is so happy that we are here, that we are in his house, that we are part of his family. And at the same time, his heart breaks for all of those that are not yet in the house, that are not yet part of the family. And like... And like he called Paul, he calls each of us into his mission to fill up the pews. He changes the hearts. He does the work. But we are the tools that he uses to proclaim the truths, the life-changing truths of the gospel. And you know, sometimes he calls us to do some pretty hard things. Paul isn't the only one he calls in this passage, right? Right? He's not the only one he speaks to. God also calls Ananias in this passage. Can you imagine being Ananias? How come I drew the short straw? Like, what's going on here, God? You want me to go out and meet the murderer? God tells him he's to go and meet Paul. And Ananias is like, do you understand what you're asking me? Like, do you get it? Do you know who this guy is? Do you know? Do you? Really, man? I've got to go do that? That's what you're asking me to do? Any of us ever been there? <laughs> maybe, we weren't, maybe we weren't asked to go and meet the biggest threat to our belief system that is walking the earth, but there are other things that can be pretty scary as well. Like just talking to somebody we don't know, for instance. Or maybe sometimes talking to somebody that we do know. Ananias has no idea what's going on. He doesn't know how God has worked in Paul's life. He doesn't know about the, the light and, and God speaking to Paul on that Damascus road. 
He doesn't know how the ground has been prepared. He just knows that God has called him to go and meet and care for a man who will most likely kill him. And Ananias answers the call. Despite his fear, despite his trepidation, he trusts God and answers the call. God prepared the ground for what Ananias did. It wasn't Ananias' qualifications. It was God's work. We may not feel qualified or ready for where God is calling us, but know that since it is he that is calling you, he is your qualification. He will make you ready and he will speak through you. It is his work. And remember that when he calls us, when he calls us, it may not always have Ananias' ending. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, Lutheran theologian, theologian, author, and spy during the time of World War II. His writings on Christianity's role in the secular world have become widely influential, influential, and his book, The Cost of Discipleship, has become a modern classic. Bonhoeffer was outspoken in his opposition to the Nazi party. He was a pacifist, and as it looked more and more certain that the war was just around the corner, he left Germany for America as he was nervous about being conscripted into service. But while he was in America, he he felt conflicted there. He felt God calling him back home. And it got to the point where he regretted his decision to run to America. And in a letter to a friend, he wrote... I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of those alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. I cannot make that choice from security. He returned to Germany on the last scheduled steamer to cross the Atlantic. During the war, Bonhoeffer was an incredible aide to the church in Germany. He ended up being caught and imprisoned, and even from prison, he was able to smuggle out messages to the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, because of his involvement in an intelligence organization, was sentenced to death on April 8th, 1945. And the sentence was carried out the next day, just two weeks before American soldiers liberated the concentration camp in which he was being held. Unlike Ananias, Bonhoeffer did not carry out the mission he was called to unscathed. The call cost him his life. God did amazing things through him while he was in prison while he was in Germany during those troubled, th- those troubled times. That was God's call on his life, and he answered it faithfully. We are not promised that God's call will come without struggle, without trial, 
without sacrifice. In fact, we are promised just the opposite. And though trial will come, we are also promised that God will be through us with it all. Just like he was with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know, I don't know how God is calling each of you. I don't know where the journey will take each of you. And I can promise that you will be stretched. I can promise that you will be uncomfortable. And I can promise that God will never leave you. Will never forsake you and will never abandon you. One of my favorite parts of the Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe is when Edmund has been rescued from the clutches of the witch. He has seen her for what she really is. Not what his sin wanted to see, but, but for who she truly is. And then is rescued and brought to Aslan, the true king of Narnia, a large lion. And then the witch comes to claim Edmund. She tells Aslan that he, he has a traitor in his midst, in, in his midst and reminds him that according to the deep magics of Narnia, every traitor belongs to her as her lawful prey. And that every treachery, for every treachery, she has the right to kill. Aslan acknowledges the truth of what the witch says. Because of his treachery, because of his sin, Edmund's life belongs to her. And then Aslan and the witch take a walk. And Aslan strikes a deal with the witch. He offers his life in place of Edmund's. That night he is sacrificed on a huge stone table in a most horrific and demeaning way. It seems that the witch has won. With Aslan out of the way, she is now queen of the land and there is none strong enough to oppose her. All so that Edmund could be saved, a life for a life. The next morning, a resounding crack shakes the forest. The stone table on which Aslan died has been split in two. Aslan has risen from the dead, and he leads his armies in battle and conquers the White Witch. Edmund goes on to have many more adventures in Narnia. Aslan calls him to many more missions. In spite of his treachery, in spite of his sin, Aslan called Edmund to extraordinary adventures to help the creatures of Narnia. He offered his own blood to pay the price that needed to be paid and called this young man into mission. In spite of our treachery, in spite of our sin, God calls us to extraordinary adventures in his mission to bring about his kingdom. God offered his own blood, the blood of Jesus, to pay the price that needed to be paid. And he is calling us into his mission. Though we have been deformed by sin, God calls to us. He whispers to us, I am so glad that you are my child. Go and feed my sheep. Go and tell the world all about my love for you and for them. Go. What a wonderful, loving, redemptive God that we serve. Amen.